This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Norman Swan here with this week's Health Report. Welcome. Today, more evidence to explode the myth that Australia is ageing. How long do the effects of bariatric surgery last and how likely is the need for a second operation? And has lap banding been abandoned too early? The people who have curable cancer yet refuse treatment with tragic results. It seems it's becoming more common. Why? And a group of several thousand doctors who call themselves medical mums have spearheaded a push to get the federal government to bring the children of asylum seekers and refugees interned on Nauru to Australia for care, given the evidence of the extraordinary trauma these children are experiencing. A letter from that group, but recruiting a vast number of medical organisations beyond them, wrote the letter to the Prime Minister, echoing a similar letter from the AMA last month. But it seems to have fallen on deaf ears. As of this morning, it has over 6,000 signatures. It was also an issue in the Wentworth by-election. One of the prime movers has been plastic and reconstructive surgeon Neela Janakirumanan, who's in our Melbourne studio. Welcome to the Health Report, Neela. Yeah, thank you very much. What evidence is there of this trauma and how does it manifest? Um, so we we have lots of evidence uh, from the whistleblowers and doctors who are in Nauru and we also have a lot of evidence from the children and uh, asylum seekers and refugees who have been returned to Australia. We, we know that these uh, people are extremely sick. Um, we know that they have a variety of health conditions and we know that this has been going on for a long time. Uh, I can sort of describe it as... It's been bad but stable for a long time. And we know from uh, day-to-day medical practice that this is how most patients present, you know, whether they're an elderly person living at home, just coping, who then has a fall and uh, stops coping, or whether it's a sick patient in a hospital who is fine for a long time and then they decompensate. We know that there is a long period of time before then where if we intervene, we can prevent uh acute problems from happening. But and these are children sort of, you're talking about. They are. And and we've so they've been there for, you know, some of them for five years. And uh, and they've been getting slowly sicker over that period of time and now they've acutely decompensated. And so this is why as a large group of doctors we have finally uh, decided to band together and call for emergency action. So what does that decompensation look like? It's about 66 kids, isn't it? And so there's 66 kids left. Um, and it the, the biggest thing that has been reported in the media is the, the psychological and psychiatric issues. There is a syndrome called resignation syndrome that uh, the psychiatrists have talked about. And basically, you know, it's been misrepresented as children going on a hunger strike. And I want to make it very clear that children don't have the intellectual capacity to try and manipulate government bureaucracies by going on a hunger strike in the way that you know, perhaps adults might. You know, these are children as young as four and five. And so it is a psychiatric condition where they feel that they have so little hope that they simply withdraw from life. They stop interacting, they stop speaking, they stop eating, they stop drinking. And I think it's much more um, appropriate to compare it to a condition such as anorexia than it is necessarily to compare it to a voluntary hunger strike. Now, the government says, well, we're going to parachute more services in that are specific to children. Isn't that the answer? Mm. The Well, there's two things I would say to that. Firstly, it, it comes back to the heart of how you provide medical care in a remote and regional area. And as Australian doctors, we do this all of the time. It's 
not efficient to send huge amounts of specialists to remote areas. So our standard practice in this country is for primary care providers to do what they can and then we take people to large centres, to large hospitals when they require specialist care. So this is not outside normal practice in Australia. But the second issue with resignation syndrome is that the environment that they are in is what has actually caused the problem. And so just sending in more psychiatrists at this point is not going to make these children get better. Um, the, the, the facilities, the hospital facilities simply don't exist to treat the medical conditions that they have and the psychiatric issues can't improve while they remain in that environment. I know you've been quite polite to the Nauruan government in your letter, but you know, Med- Medicine Sans Frontier has been pulled out. Um, the, de- the head doctor of the health contractor has been uh, deported. Um, so are you being overly polite here? Well, I think it. we have to recognise that Nauru is a sovereign nation. And if we, you know, as a nation, we have decided to treat them as a client state when it comes to the uh, care of these refugees and asylum seekers. And I should note that of the approximately 1,000 people on the island, 800 of them have already had their claims processed and are genuine refugees. And so it we, we have given over our duties uh, to the government of Nauru and we know that there have been issues. They have uh, in some cases refused to issue exit visas to uh, sick refugees uh, who have Australian federal court orders uh, for transfer. And this is one of the fundamental problems of uh, sending people who are our responsibility to a different country because we are bound by their laws and regulations and their ability to govern themselves. Now, you sent this letter which has a lot of medical colleges. It's quite a big deal getting a medical mm. college to actually support you on this. They're quite conservative, uh, mm. as well as a broader group of doctors than just the medical mums. Mm. So when you sent it to the Prime Minister, what happened? Uh, so Sarah Townend, who is my co-author, uh, went to Parliament House with Paul Bowart, who's an extremely senior and well-respected paediatrician, and they went up to the Prime Minister's office, and the Prime Minister's office refused to accept the letter. And after some discussion, they were sent back down to the foyer to phone up and um, see if someone would collect the letter, and they did not, and they were ultimately told to put it into parliamentary internal mail. So what are you going to do now? Uh, so we... So actually, just before you answer that question, mm. are you at, what's going to happen to the parents? So you, you, you want the, ch- the kids to come back to Australia for specialist treatment. What's good, what do the, do the parents uh, come the, to? They, the, the families have to be transferred together. Um, I mean, we, it, it's unthinkable that we would provide medical care to a child without having their parents involved. We, we wouldn't do it in this country. Children are fundamentally a part of a family unit, um, however that family looks like, um, whether that's parents or grandparents or extended relatives. And children are psychologically vulnerable and they need the support of people that they have attached to. So, and so, hmm? so both parties have said, you know, they want to be tough on the boats. They don't want more boats coming. Are you going to get any leverage at all? I mean, I know it was an, an issue in the Wentworth by-election, but in a general election, are you, are you planning a general election campaign on this or what? Look, I, I think that there are separate issues. I think there is the issue of stopping the boats. And in addition to offshore detention, there were a number of other policies that the government introduced at the same time, which included boat turn back, as well as an extensive education campaign in the um, Indonesian refugee camps, educating people about the dangers of getting on a boat. And so, so I, I'm not 
I don't think any of these doctors are entirely convinced that letting a couple hundred extremely sick people back to Australia is necessarily going to suddenly start the boats. And the second thing we would say is that, you know, as medicos, we... We treat patients with complex problems and when a drug has toxic side effects, we look for a better solution. And so we think that it's very comparable to say to the government, sure, we don't want deaths at sea either, but we also don't want deaths on land. So let's look for a better policy than incarcerating these children. Nila, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We'll have the letter so you can see what it says uh, on our website, the Health Reports website. Nila Janakaramanan is a plastic and reconstructive surgeon based in Melbourne. And you're listening to the Health Report here on RN, ABC News and CBC Radio across Canada. I'm Norman Swan. About 10 days ago at an international congress on breast cancer in Melbourne, there were presentations on a phenomenon that many specialists think is becoming commoner. People with curable cancer refusing treatment. Now, I need to make a declaration because I chaired that session, but I thought you'd be interested. So I've invited one of the people behind it, Christabel Saunders, who's Professor of Surgical Oncology at the University of Western Australia. Welcome to the Health Report, Christabel. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, Norman. How common is this problem? Well, the honest truth is we don't really know because we haven't studied it, at least in this country or probably anywhere in the world. But all of us think practicing looking after patients with cancer that it's getting more common and probably around 5% of people who have, as you say, potentially curable cancers are reluctant to undergo conventional medical treatment. Just breast cancer? No, all cancers. Um, we see it across the board, um, people with colorectal, um, lung cancer, breast cancer and other cancers. So tell me, tell me, give me a typical story. Well, stories come in all sorts of different forms, but typically the people who seem to be those who are prone to reject conventional treatment are people who are younger, who are overall fitter, who are better educated, so perhaps exactly opposite than what you'd think. People who have often good peer support networks and go and do all the right things in terms of exercise and keeping themselves fit and healthy. But there's something about conventional medicine that they just don't want to swallow. And... And, and you're talking about people that if they were treated, they've got a good chance of being cured. Yes, that's the sad thing. Uh, quite often, well, not infrequently, we see people who have, have a cancer, which we think, it, for example, breast cancer, which I manage, a cancer which may well be cured with, with conventional surgery and perhaps other treatments such as chemotherapy or radiotherapy, but the person really doesn't want to have those treatments. And then you sadly see the disease go on to progress and sometimes even that person dying of the disease. What do we know? So it has an impact on survival. You've seen people presumably die of this. I have, yes. But I also, some data presented at the conference suggested that if you've got, uh, if, if you have any commercial uh, complementary therapy, which is very, a very high incidence of complementary therapy when you, so we're talking about alternative therapy, we just abandon treatment and you go and have nothing but alternative treatment. Um, but people with complementary therapy also seem to have a lower survival rate according to data presented. Well, I think there's some pretty clear data about people who have just alternative therapy. And I think that's where we need to be very careful and think about definitions. So by alternative therapy, we mean therapies that have got no proven benefit in terms of curing, in this case, the cancer and patients who, who will not have conventional treatment. Whereas there's a whole range of complementary therapies that, that range anything from, for example, yoga and meditation to perhaps um, dietary and vitamin supplements. And on the whole, we support patients very much in considering complementary therapy. 
It, the data is actually a little bit confused about whether some of those may be dangerous. And I think the bottom line is to always discuss with your oncologist if you're going to take a complementary therapy along with your conventional therapy. But there's now really clear data that for people who do not have conventional therapy but just go the alternative route, unfortunately, their death rate is, well, overall two and a half times that of another person. And for some cancers, such as breast cancer, five times that. There was a suggestion that some people who reject therapy have experienced trauma in relation to cancer in the past in their family. Yes, and I think that's the real key that probably, you know, we don't spend enough time exploring why people make these decisions. Sometimes the decisions are for, for quite irrational reasons, such as fear of, of, of the treatment and the side effects of the treatment. But sometimes it's because of some deep underlying psychological issues. I mean, all of us, when we're diagnosed with any serious illness, we want to take some control and giving that control away to the doctors is difficult. So for some people, it may be a matter of taking control of their own destiny. Um, but there may be other... Uh, more serious reasons that we need to explore. And so I think what such we as? can... Well, such as underlying trauma as a child, perhaps seeing one of your parents die or suffer from a disease and thinking that you're not able um, to cope with the treatments. It may be because of cultural or religious beliefs. Um, but sometimes it also seems to be driven by what we might call Dr. Google. So just that ability nowadays to go online and whatever beliefs you may have or somebody in, in, has tried to tell you, you can confirm those by seeing anecdotal reports on the internet. And the more you go back to the internet, the more those sites will come up again and again and confirm those um, the things that you believe. So presumably the worst thing you can do is say you're a complete nutcase, you know, you're mad, you're going to die. <laughs> yeah, well, I think this, that's where we as doctors really have to In other to words, just completely learning. reject it and be <laughs> totally brutal about it. Well, that's right. And, and there are undoubtedly some, some of my colleagues that, and, who do sometimes, the first thought is, you know, it's, it's my way or the highway. It's the oncologist's way or the highway. And I think one thing we're beginning to learn is that we really need to start to find out why the patient thinks that and, and have a bit of time to explore the reasons why and perhaps be able to turn that around. But on the other side of it, you might be frightened as a specialist to be too assertive and say, look, I really do think this is the best thing for you. I mean, how assertive should the specialist be? Could it? Could she be? Well, I think we can be as assertive as we like. And that was one thing that I think clearly came out of the meeting that we had um, the week before last that you kindly chaired, where we had um, Ian Freckleton, a well-known QC from Melbourne, who told us that we can be assertive. You know, we do need to, obviously, we need to be kind to our patients. We need to support them in the decisions that they make. But we also need to tell them what will happen if they don't have conventional treatment because some of the alternative treatments in themselves are quite horrific and have awful side effects. There's this thing called black salve which erodes the skin and looks horrible. Yes, that's a pretty awful treatment and one which is actually illegal to sell in this country. There is a large fine for people who are trying to sell it but unfortunately people can still get hold of it. It's 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 made from a variety of, of plant compounds. It's very corrosive and burns holes in the skin but there's no evidence that it cures cancer. And presumably it's also important to you know, keep the door open for people who might want to come back so that you've not rejected them. Yeah, I guess that's one thing I've learnt over the last few years looking after patients is that you really need to try to keep that communicate lines of communication open. Uh, sometimes patients, things will change in their life or perhaps um, we as a team can persuade them that there is a different way. And so always making sure that you support the patient and allow them to come back and discuss with you the issues at any time is really important. It's very tempting, very briefly because we're running over time, but it's very tempting mm. to, you can understand why people think this is a plot by the pharmaceutical industry, um, these drugs don't work and uh, they're just make, you're just making profit out of me. 
Yeah, well, I think that unfortunately, though, the, the beliefs that people have often run across everything from surgery to radiotherapy to drug treatments. And the honest truth is, if there was a quick and easy cure for cancer, we'd all be the first people to use it. Mm. Christabel, thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you. Christabel Saunders is Professor of Surgical Oncology at the University of Western Australia. Hardly a day goes by without someone complaining publicly about Australia's ageing society, implying we're going to hell in a handbasket with unsustainable welfare and health systems. The underlying assumption is that we're crumbling and living longer in miserable disability. Yet when you look around, that's not necessarily what you see, despite the fact that life expectancy has been going up by about three months a year for well over a century, maybe even 150 years. Now, a large, impressive study from Stanford University has confirmed that that's what's happening, is that we're living younger, longer, and that there's been no change to the patterns of dying over the age of 65. It's simply happening later. One of the researchers is Sripad Chujakbukar, who's Professor of Biology and Population Studies at Stanford, and I spoke to him this morning. If you're old when you die, you know, 100 years ago, you might have been 60, and now you're probably 95. It's a moving target. So we were trying to get at a more reliable indicator of what is happening. Also one that would tell us something about whether we were approaching a limit to life, whether inequality was important to survival in some way, and whether we could provide information that would allow us to make forecasts that were reliable. So what did you do in this study? In essence, we said, okay, let's say you've got a million people who reach age 65. We count the ages at which percentages of them drop dead. So the 10th percentile, 10% of them have died, and the 90th percentile, 90% of them have died. We looked at the shape of the distribution as it moved. So essentially, what you're doing is following, if you like, that wave of people through from 65 through to when they die to see whether the wave yep. pattern's changing as we live longer. Yes, exactly. What did you find when you crunched the maths? Well, what we found is that this pattern, this wave, if you like, actually is a wave. I mean, it, the shape stays about the same and has done for something like 50 years in 20 countries. And it's moving at almost a steady speed to later and later ages. So about three years every generation, a generation being 25 years or so. So what you're saying is that life expectancy at 65 is going up three years every 20 years. Is that what you're saying? Yes. So some people have argued, and, and some of your colleagues actually at Stanford have argued, that what you're going to see as people get older is you hit a brick wall and then lots of people sort of crash against that wall and you get what's this called compression of mortality. So you do get a change right. in the wave. You've not shown that. No, we didn't see any evidence that there was a slowdown. In fact, it's sort of pretty close to constant. Some countries are speeding up a little bit and then they slow down. But there was absolutely no sign that we were running into a wall. And the shape of death, if you like, has not changed. Mm -hmm. Yes, which is kind of stunning when you think about it. But the only explanation we can come up with is that we're getting healthier as we delay death. We just are able to make transitions into disability and things of that sort delayed by about as long as we're able to delay death. What does that say about the future if it were to continue? I guess it depends on whether you welcome old age or not. We're certainly going to be living longer. I see no sign that things are going to slow down. What you're describing is a wave where that wave has not changed, let's say, since the 1930s, or you've, you've gone back 50 years, but there's no reason to assume it's been the same for a, long, a much longer period of time. 
that the definition of old age changes, that you're younger longer. Exactly. The other thing that's really striking about that finding is that we see no evidence that the people who live the longest are in some sense better endowed than the people who are living a fewer number of years. But hold, hold on a second. Um, I mean, if you look at countries like, well, the United States or Australia or Britain, there are enormous yep. life expectancy gaps between rich and poor. In Australia, between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people, it's 11 years. In the city that I grew up in, Glasgow, the life expectancy gap mm-hmm. is 25 years between suburbs. So I'm not sure what you're saying there. <laughs> Well, that's the interesting thing, that one of the, the puzzling aspects of these differentials is that you would expect to see some change in the aggregate pattern when you add up all these different elements. And my strong suspicion is that these sorts of differentials, the inequality differentials, they are really most important when you're younger, and they're not particularly important when you get older. Uh, so the they, so they've, States, washed out, example, they've washed out by the time you're 65, unfortunately. Yes. So if you're just looking, concentrating on the over 65s, if you've gone that far, you've survived. So we do see differences in life expectancy, but we need to focus in on younger ages to address those. Now, I often quote the the figure, you know, people say, oh, mostly health expenditures in the last year of life. But there's some evidence that it's in the last five years of life. And I often sort of glibly say you get sick five years before you die and that that hasn't changed for 50 or 60 years. And it's just got later. Is there any evidence to support exactly. my glib statement <laughs> in your data? Please say yes. Uh, yes. Indeed. Oh, good. I'm glad you said yes. Yes, it's completely consistent with what we see. We're not seeing any, you know, anything where, as you get older, you are going to start getting sick maybe ten years ahead of time or something like that. I assume the United States is the same as Australia that. You, don't, you barely can open the newspaper and don't hear about the doom and gloom about our ageing society. Data such as yours shows that we're not an ageing society at all. We're certainly going to have older people, but they're going to be healthier longer and they should be able to contribute more as time goes by. So we can get a pretty good handle on what's going to happen in the next 25, 30 years. So let's move forward yeah. 25 or 30 years. What's the life yeah. expectancy of somebody at 65 in a developed country? Somewhere around the early 90s. And I think you're going to get very high rates of increase of people over 100, for sure. Sripad Tuljapurkar is Professor of Biology and Population Studies at Stanford University in California. Bariatric surgery is surgery on the stomach and or the nearby small bowel to help obese people lose weight. There are various operations on offer, from laparoscopic gastric banding, which uses an adjustable band to control stomach capacity, to stomach-reducing surgery, called a gastric sleeve, to a major bypass operation called a Roux-en-Y. The questions that consumers have include how effective these operations are, how long the effects last, and what's the likelihood the surgeon will have to go back in for a redo. On top of that, the pattern of bariatric surgery has changed, with laparoscopic banding being partly displaced by the gastric sleeve. One of Australia's bariatric surgery pioneers is Paul O'Brien, who's Emeritus Professor of Surgery at Monash University and was an early adopter and promoter of laparoscopic banding. He and his colleagues have brought together the available evidence on the long-term outcomes for all bariatric procedures after 10 or more years. Welcome to The Health Report, Paul. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. So what did you find? 
Well, there are really two separate parts of the study. The main part, which was our own patients who had the band, we'd followed them for 20 years and we found that they were still doing very well at 20 years. It was very even outcome. At 20 years, the group that we followed had lost just over 30 kilograms of weight compared with their preoperative weight, which I wouldn't have dared even think about that 20 years before. So that's an outstanding weight loss. And we, in our other studies, have shown that that sort of weight loss has major health benefits, it has major improvements in the quality of life, and it allows people to live longer. So we were fairly pleased with that. At the same time, we also looked at all surgery, bands, bypass, sleeve, and others, uh, to see what the long-term weight loss for other procedures was. And what was By it? and large, they, they work well. Bypass particularly does. The sleeve, we haven't had long enough to have good data on the sleeve, so we had very limited results on the sleeve. Uh, earlier operations, stapling procedures that were done in the 1990s and the 1980s uh, didn't do so well. And so we still have a question about the long-term benefit of the stapling procedures. Many deaths overall? Uh, in our study, there were no deaths. Uh, we had uh, over 8,000 people had the band. There were many re-operations. We've never had a death. So it's been a very safe procedure. And that's one of its great attributes that you can say to people, there is a risk, but it's a very small risk. Now, laparoscopic banding has uh, gone off the boil. I know that you're a great promoter of it. You pioneered it in Australia and it's gone off the ball. In the United States, they barely use it at all. They do the bypass operation. Um, and and bariatric surgeons in Australia have largely moved towards the gastric sleeve. What's going on there? Yeah, it's, it's sad that that's happening. We still use the band a lot. We're very happy with it. But the difference between us and most of the groups in Australia and in the United States uh, are that we offer a comprehensive aftercare program. We have a lot of people helping us to do this. And by providing that aftercare, providing the advice, providing the adjustments, you get a good result. To explain here, with the, with the lap band, you've actually got, you can actually pump air or water into it to actually expand or contract according That's to right. how well it's working. And isn't that why the Americans don't use it? Because it requires quite a lot of maintenance? Yeah, I think that's a, why a lot of surgeons don't use it. So rather than work with others who can help them in doing this, uh, they choose to run their own practice and do a sleeve or a bypass, which you can then do when the patient disappears and you don't feel so guilty about it. Whereas we chase our people and make sure we give them good care. What about reoperation rates by procedure? I, I heard for a while the lap banding was requiring quite a lot of reoperation. It, it was, uh, and in fact, all of the procedures require a steady amount of reoperations. They're not that different from one to the other. And what, what, are, what the, are the reoperations for? I mean, you didn't do the, it particularly what? in the band. If people eat too quickly, they end up getting an enlargement above, and so we've been able to reduce that problem by better education, better support for them, better advice, better knowledge, and that's come right down to a very low level. 
other things, uh, the band does have a system where we add the fluid and so the tubing and the port through which that happened can have technical problems. And I say to the patients, look, this is a part of the deal. If you buy a new car, you don't expect to have that car for 20 years without having repairs to things. And it's any chronic disease that we treat has a reoperation rate, and it's a part of the show. We can fix pretty much everything. Now, I know, you, I know you're you're an enthusiast for the for the, the laparoscopic banding, Paul. But I mean, so you've got a consumer sitting there wanting to know this. What's their What's their chances of being reoperated on on average? <laughs> Uh, the chances now for a patient I treat today, they have about a 10% chance of needing some other procedure done in the next 10 years. And if it's a gastric sleeve? A gastric sleeve, we haven't got good enough data yet because we have very little 10-year data, but there's a significant reoperation rate still. In the published literature, it runs around 20 30%. And are we too scared of the bypass operation, which gives you much more profound weight loss that probably does last longer? Yeah, we are. Uh, I use it a lot. We use all of these procedures, and I've used the bypass since the 1970s. Uh, so I'm very keen on it. I know that it's a good operation, but it is complex, so the surgeons and the patients tend to shy away from it a bit, but it's still a powerful operation. And as you say, in the United States, it's the dominant procedure. But not for the amateur. You've got to know what to do. Paul O'Brien, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Emeritus Professor Paul O'Brien, who's in the Centre for Obesity Research and Education at Monash University in Melbourne. This has been The Health Report. I hope you can join me next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.